talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Will Weber is on the board. Content production, Will Erskine. In the newsroom, Diana Weeks and Dave Woodard. Did you watch the Ontario leadership debate last night? Other than the yelling, that was the best 90-minute nap I've had in a while. Hey, here's hey. Scott Thompson. Yeah, how was that? You know, I feel sorry for anyone that, you know, watched it that really didn't have to. Like, you know, we all have to kind of watch it, sort of pay attention. But then maybe we were the only ones that were. Uh, good afternoon. I'm Scott Thompson. It's 900 CHML. On the board is William Weber in the newsroom, Diane and Dave. So, uh, you know, we uh, finished the show at 6 and then uh, went to watch the debate uh, at uh, at 6.30. So, uh, boy, there's an hour and a half of my life I'll never get back. <laughs> did you, you know, it'd be interesting. Did you watch it? If you've watched it and, and have a comment on it. Uh, send us a note. I'd love to hear what your uh, uh, what your impressions were. We're going to play you some clips uh, in just a minute. But, uh, you know, I, I guess in the sense, if you look at the polling, uh, the election is Doug Ford's to lose. He's got the uh, the lead at this point. And uh, it's always interesting when you hear the second and third place candidates uh, going at each other, uh, you know, and in this case, uh, we've got a one candidate who's been in opposition uh, for quite a while. And then we've got uh, another candidate who is a, you know, previous minister in a government that was spanned 15 years of, of rule. So each one kind of defending their own position and then trying to uh, attack Doug Ford. Uh, the premier at the same time, who uh, obviously has uh, the advantage uh, that we're seeing right now. So many pundits are saying at this point, uh, unless Doug Ford uh, says something to to greatly damage himself between now and, and June 2nd, then uh, it's his election to lose. And the others are uh, are, are taking, uh, you know, shots at him. And uh, certainly last night, uh, they went back and they started talking about the debate. And I could just, you know, I'm, I'm, I just look over at my wife and, and we all just kind of fall into our, our seat in the sense that, man, you know, who wants to go backwards? We all know what the hell happened. We lived through it for two and a half years. Uh, and, and, you know, attacking certain things and, and, and what have you that uh, perhaps could have uh, been done better and handled differently as far as lockdowns and such. But at the end of the day, when you're waiting for a supply of vaccine to come in, um, you know, you do what you have to do. He admitted he had made mistakes. Uh, and, you know, obviously, you know, going through that experience, you're going to you're going to lo- uh, learn a few things. But, you know, I'm not sure that uh, that people really were inspired moving forward in any of this. Uh, I, I think that's why uh, the the premier's got the, the lead that he has. You know, uh, uh, Andrea Horvath talked a lot about hope, a lot about, you know, a lot of stories of families we've all heard. And, and you know, it's great to have personal anecdotes and, and families that have said this, that, and the other. But I believe with the global pandemic and now the ensuing uh, you know, energy situation and, 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 and the inflation and housing and the cost of, of living and stuff. Everybody's living it. Everybody's been living it for the last, 
uh, two and a half years. And, you know, I think the difference is, is, is coming out of this pandemic, people are tired of hearing of lofty ideas and things that you pay into, but you just don't seem to see any result from. And I, I think that uh, the NDP fall into that trap, you know, more hope, more whatever. But, you know, what does hope look like? What is the alternative look like? Uh, whether it's transportation, whether it's energy, what does it look like? Because at least uh, with the premier, you know what he's doing with hospitals and roads and such. And you can see that. Um, again, with uh, the leader of the Liberal Party, 15 years as economic development uh, minister and and transportation, not for 15 years, but his party was in for 15 years and then under the wind government. So, you know, each coming from uh, a, a, a point where they can offer something, but it's, you know, I think it's a lot of people are just hearing the same stuff over and over again, in which why there's probably not much uh, interest in this election whatsoever. Uh, all right, uh, let's play you some clips now. Uh, the first one is Del Duca and Andrea Horvath, who uh, are obviously uh, vying for second place at this point, if you believe the polls. Again, Ms. Horvath, certainly, respectfully, we're not here tonight COVID, to fight the 2018 election all over again. It. There are new, there are new, there are new, there are new challenges facing people. You left a wreck behind you, and you have to step up and take some responsibility for that, Mr. Del And and there you have it. Uh, You know, at the end of the day, defending the the record of of the last time his party was in government and and, and where we are, where we are. Uh, This was uh, Premier Ford and talking about how the union support has changed in uh, the parties in the parties uh, as far as which party they're, they're supporting. You know, Mr. Ms. Horvath, for years, the, 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 the union supported you. Well, guess what? The Boilermakers don't support you. Leona do- doesn't support you any anymore. And the electrical uh, workers don't support you. You've lost touch. You're out of touch with the hardworking <laughs> men and women. I think you need to this, look in the in mirror, Mr. Ford. And, you know, again, we heard a lot about buddies, his buddies, his buddies, his buddies. What, what does that mean to people? I don't know. It's like hope. Can you show us a picture? Can you give us examples? Can you paint a picture? Uh, you know, anything. And for the most part, it, it, it started off and there was lots of squabbles. Uh, but then you, you could see things sort of settle down. And uh, But at the beginning, at times, you, you couldn't even hear what all the people were saying. Listen to this. For the carbon tax, which will be another 10 cents, which is a major issue. And you want to bring back the license plate stickers. We're going to cut it off there. Thank you very much. Nobody can understand you when you're all talking at the same time. All right, and there you have it. Tony's on the line, 905-645-3221, star 9900 on your cell. Tony, what are your thoughts? Oh, well, I didn't watch the uh, debate, so uh, to me, I watched a couple of them, and they're just just a bunch of uh, promises that will never come to attrition. But anyways, I, as a voter, and they're, t- they're wondering why people aren't voting, everyone that votes, I vote for the person that I think that will benefit the people. We elect government uh, people to govern the country for the benefits of the people. But what's happening today, and Ford is no different, and neither is uh, DeLuca or uh, even Andrea, uh, they are out there to try to get the money for the uh, big businesses. And we are taking it in the end 
and we we are just being swamped or, or just lied to and, and controlled, and these big businesses are stealing this country blind. Tony putting it uh, into the arms of big business. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Obviously, coming out of a global pandemic, things are starting to pick up again. And as, we, as we've documented at this time many times over the course of the pandemic, when we're trying to support uh, businesses and such, uh, things slowly starting to come back. We remember in Hamilton uh, a, a huge booming TV production and film production industry prior to the uh, pandemic. I remember when there wasn't even a film office. I think this was done out of the tourism department. And now, obviously, has grown to the way, uh, to the extent that it has. And now, uh, although it, they certainly did take a hit during the, the global pandemic, uh, things are really now picking up again. To talk more about the activity going on in the Hammer, let's bring in Kim Adro as Senior Project Manager at the City's Film Office and with us now. Kim, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hi, thanks for having me. So um, I remember I was speaking at the beginning that it, this used to be done through tourism. How long has uh, has the city had a, a film office department per se? Um, well, we are part of the Tourism and Culture Division in Planning and Economic Development, but there's been a film office for, for quite a while now, um, since about 2009 was when our film bylaw was passed, and we've had dedicated staff. So, why is Hamilton? Uh, you know, and again, everybody knows. Everybody who knows the city knows what this obvious, uh, what the obvious interest is. But why is this city so uh, so valuable to those in the production industry? Yeah, they honestly, what they really love is just that it can do so many things. So they they love Hamilton's grit. They love our industriousness they love they love sort of having that um show on screen with some of our more industrial areas and um they also love it that they can just drive 10 minutes in another direction and be at a big sprawling mansion or 10 minutes in another direction and be in an agricultural zone or at a beach or in a green space so the, the variety is huge variety of architecture variety of landscapes variety of looks um and they just really think Hamilton's a cool place that they want to be. There's a lot going on that attracts them. So, as take us back through the last couple of years. Uh, did it, you know, obviously po- a pre-pandemic, we, a very strong industry. What happened during the pandemic? How much did did it slow down? Did it come to a complete stop? H- how did you get through those two years? Yeah, film has been very fortunate um, in that they were able to bounce back pretty quickly. So, like everyone, in, in March there was a, a little bit of a shutdown. The first production started coming back in July um, after the the shutdown started in 2020. And um, so 2020 was a little bit of a slower year because of that, because they lost a few months. But what we saw was when production did come back, it came back very strong, and there was a lot of demand. And we've just seen that that pressure for, for more content and more filming just continuing to drive demand. And it's just uh, stayed really steady in Hamilton and continues to grow. So in 2021, if you know, talk about bouncing back, we actually had a record year in Hamilton. Mm. Wow. So in t- during the pandemic, you actually had a record year. So uh, obviously the word is getting out. What about hiring talent? Because we all know that everybody's looking for everybody. How, how have you been able to maintain talent and, and enough uh, bodies to get this work done? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we're so lucky in Hamilton. We have such a great base of talent. And then in southern Ontario more generally. So uh, 
you know, people don't always think about it, but there's just so many different jobs in the film and television industry. There's technical jobs, you know, lighting and electricity. Um, there's, you know, hair and makeup and art design and set design and costume design and cameras and everything else you can think of. So there, a lot of the jobs uh, are through unions and guilds, and there's just some really great uh, talent in southern Ontario to pull from. You know, over 9,000 film workers at last count in Hamilton, so we're great. We're wow. in a great, strong position to supply it. So we're back exactly to where we were prior to the pandemic and booming on and continuing on where we left off. Yeah, we're actually better off. So like I said, 2021 was a record year, and we're just looking at our numbers right now. We're ahead of where we were at this time last year, so we're on track for another fantastic year. You talked about all the different industries within the industry. What about spinoffs, hotels, restaurants? Who else benefits from this? Yeah, absolutely. There, there's a huge spinoff benefit, and hotels are definitely a huge one. We saw last year, for example, almost 20,000 room nights in hotels in Hamilton attributable to film, um, which translates to over $2 million in revenue for our hotel partners. Uh, definitely we see, you know, there's businesses that you wouldn't always think of. So um, businesses that do power washing, for example, or, or go and do cleanups or supply mm. porta potties, um, yeah. you know, those are all businesses too. And then, of course, there's core businesses. You know, in Hamilton, we have a really great drone photography business, Drone Boy. There's, of course, Hamilton Film Studios and Eon and, you know, all the location owners and, and business owners that have been able to rent out their spaces as filming locations, particularly when things were locked down and they weren't able to host events or have groups in. It was a huge benefit to them to be able to then turn around and repurpose the space to, to host filming as a location or as a background or holding area. All right, people always want to know about the big stars. Uh, what big stars are coming to town or are in town right now? Oh, boy. You know, we're sworn to secrecy. <laughs> but um, I'm not. Honestly, be- Kim, I won't tell anybody. <laughs> <laughs> It'll, what I can say is keep an eye out. They usually get photographed here and there, especially if they're also in Toronto. Um, and, yeah, keep your eyes peeled for, for next year when things start coming out. It's going to be a really exciting year. We saw tons of stars in the past little while in Hamilton. Um, so Guillermo del Toro's Oscar-nominated uh, film, Nightmare Alley, that had Bradley Cooper and Kate Blanchett and Willem Dafoe. They were all in Hamilton, Rooney Mara. Um, you know, Umbrella Academy is a hugely popular one that's just about to come out in June that, that was here last summer with all of their stars. So Arnold Schwarzenegger? Oh, you know, he's he's been photographed out and about. <laughs> we'll have to keep our fingers crossed. So we're just gonna we're gonna go buy your house and see how many of these people you're having over for dinner, Kim. Okay, we got we want an invite, we want an autograph, a picture, anything. Uh, Kim Adrobes sure. with us, senior project manager, the city's film office, which is very busy. Kim, thanks for the time. Good luck. Okay, thanks very much. Take care. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Hockey fans in this area aware that uh, the Leafs are out. Uh, Boston also out. So my family has been neutralized, which is good to see because it's always bad when one lasts longer than the other. And the Boston fans uh, brutally torment the uh, the Leaf fans. And that's usually the way it happens. But now, bizarre story coming out of uh, Toronto today where uh, Mitch Marner and I believe his fiance where uh, their their vehicle was taken. They were carjacked and and his Land Rover taken. And, and you can imagine what 
that experience can can only be like with your uh you know you and your fiance in a car and then all of a sudden three people pull up and and at gunpoint your you uh you lose your ride and you could think of my goodness what could have gone wrong in that in that second and it's a completely different uh conversation so let's chat about that and the original reason why we're bringing in uh sean fitzgerald managing editor and feature writer with with the athletic uh the battle of alberta which is cool because many times when the playoffs start people are, are there any canadian teams in what who made it in this year and here we have two from alberta and as a person who was lucky enough to be in calgary during the olympics uh working out there you know that when these two teams get together uh it's a firestorm and a heck of a lot of fun let's bring in uh, sean fitzgerald a managing editor feature writer with the athletic and with us now sean thanks for the time i hope you're well and thanks for having me I remember many times when, you know, there'd only be like the odd team that would make it from Canada into the playoffs. Obviously, a good year for uh, Canada this year. Uh, well, sort of, uh, at least if you're from Alberta. How how uh, significant is this battle and and what does it mean to these these two uh, cities? Yeah, I don't know if it's a great, great year for Canada in general. I mean, only three of the seven teams made it in. Yeah. So. Uh, I mean, that, that takes me back to some of my high school mathematics marks there. Not so well in terms of percentages. But, yeah, I mean, if you're a hockey fan in Alberta, you're having a pretty good week. Um, for the first time since 1991, the Oilers and Flames are going to be playing against each other. Uh, they've met five times in a best of seven with the Oilers going four and one over that stretch. And if you think back to, you know, a lot of the players who played in those series – you know, you can come down to the Hockey Hall of Fame anytime you want, and they're staring down at you from etched glass because they're honored members of the Hockey Hall of Fame. So, yeah, I mean, you know, the Battle of Alberta, it's one of those one of those rivalries that's just sort of enmeshed in what we think of when we think of playoff hockey, even if it hasn't happened in, God, 30 years. Well, that's it. I mean, it has been 30 years. Uh, it's, it's amazing it's taken so long. Uh, what will this do for the future of this battle uh, as this cements itself into tradition, legend? Yeah, it's tough to say because I think you probably would have looked back in 1991 and thought, well, this will keep happening every few years. But yeah. as we know, uh, it hasn't. Uh, I mean, teams' fortunes rise, they ebb, they flow. Um, and for whatever reason, in the case of the Canadian teams, uh, they've been ebbing a lot more than they've been flowing over the last generation or so. So I wouldn't put money on this happening again anytime in the future. I mean, if you think from a a more regional context, how many times the Leafs and Ottawa Senators met hmm. in the early 2000s. And you think, well, well, this is going to be a great rivalry going up and down the 401 for the rest of time. But no, that hasn't happened in a long time either. So, so what you got it is what I'm saying here, Scott. And, and I bet you they are out there. So uh, as you look at this from a hockey analyst, what do you think we're going to see in this series? Well, I mean, I think you're going to see a, a pretty talented young Calgary team that you know doesn't really have the razzle-dazzle. Uh, nationally, that certainly the the dearly departed Toronto Maple Leafs had with with Austin Matthews and um, you know William Nylander and Morgan Riley and John Tavares and Mitch Marner, um, but I mean they're here and they dispatched Dallas in seven games with a pretty remarkable goal in overtime in Game Seven from Johnny Goudreau, um, and then of course on the other side you have Connor McDavid, who I mean even the most casual hockey fan would know who he is and would probably have seen some of his handiwork on any passing sports highlight show that you mm. might be flipping by on TV. So, yeah, it will be a remarkable matchup filled with uh, young speed and uh, star power. Will this get Calgary a new rink? 
<laughs> this is a whole other conversation. I have very strong feelings on uh, public-private partnerships when it comes to uh, entertainment venues like that. Uh, but it's always interesting <laughs> when Gary Bettman gets stuck in your elevator. It is true. Um, but, you know, uh, I mean, if it's a private enterprise and the franchise is worth many hundreds of millions, if not on its way yeah. worth to a billion, I'm not sure that a public cent, a single public cent should go into any of those ever. Uh, I'm sure there's lots of Canadians that agree with you there, Sean. All right, we uh, can't let you go uh, without your comments on what happened with uh, Mitch Marner and the carjacking and such. What can you tell us? Yeah, I mean, not much more than what's already been reported. I mean, the Leafs did confirm uh, in a message this morning that, that he was, in fact, um, you know, did confirm the report from the Toronto Sun, which was then confirmed by Global and CTV and several other outlets. Um, yeah, it is it is a frightening reality, unfortunately, now in, in parts of southern Ontario that we've, we've read about this happening more than once. Um, I mean, and yes, as you mentioned, thank goodness, um, all that was taken was, was his vehicle. Do we know anything about how he's doing now? I understand he was shaken up a bit. I can't imagine it. Uh, or I, I can imagine it would be a pretty traumatic experience. Yeah, no, uh, the, the Leafs did not make him. The Leafs had their uh, season-ending availability today with you know, uh, General Manager Kyle Dubas, Coach Sheldon Keefe, uh, various and assorted players. Mitch Marner, quite understandably, was not part of those proceedings. So, yeah, I mean, you know, he'd been in contact with teammates, obviously shaken up. Um, but yeah, that's, we, we just don't know a lot about it now because I mean, you know, the investigation is unfolding as we speak. All right, Sean, your thoughts on what we all, uh, saw come to an end on, on Saturday night for the Leafs. I mean, my goodness, um, uh, you, you know, Matthews had an incredible year, uh, you know, certainly, um, you, you know, a record year for him. Things were looking great. I guess if you're going to lose, you're going to lose to Tampa Bay, but, but what are your thoughts on where this team is and, and how they move forward from this? It's a tricky conversation. It's it's complicated. It's not like, you know, this isn't the same team that necessarily lost to the Carolina Hurricanes when they had the emergency backup goaltender who was also a Zamboni driver, right? Like, yeah. this yeah. isn't necessarily the same team that, you know, lost to the Montreal Canadiens after holding a 3-1 series lead last year. This isn't the same team that, you know, lost to Columbus in the play-in. This isn't the same team that blew a 4-1 lead in the third period against Boston in Game 7 in 2013. But... It's the same result. Uh, the Leafs still have not won a playoff series since 2004. Um, since the salary cap era began, which was after the 0405 lockout, the Leafs among the Canadian teams have the fewest number of series wins, which is a grand total of zero. And that's problematic. So what do you do now, as you asked? I think the prevailing sentiment right now around the Leafs um, and certainly the, I guess if you want to call them thought leaders, <laughs> around, around the team seems to be uh, they get one more shot. That's it. Yeah. I mean, they got the two-time defending Stanley Cup champion, Tampa Bay Lightning, um, who, you know, after a shaky start, rebounded and played really, really well. And, you know, that's a team that has on its roster, depending on the conversation you're going to have, uh, potentially three or four future Hall of Famers. So, you know, at a certain point, you're like, well, they played them really tight. They played them to a Game 7 over the seven-game series. I mean, the shot totals were almost identical. The goal totals were almost yeah. identical. You can say that you probably just lost to a better team, a more experienced team. Uh, that being said, yeah, like next year, if, if the pressure was big this year, um, it's going to be inescapable next year. All right. I don't want to play could have, would have, and we've only got like 30 seconds left. But if they had beaten Tampa Bay, do you think they could have gone all the way? I mean, anytime you're still in the playoffs, you have a shot. I mean, you take, we're talking about the Battle of Alberta. 
Yeah. And, you know, more than likely, both of those teams are just playing for the honor of getting smoked out of the playoffs pretty quickly by the Colorado Avalanche in the next yeah. series. However, they're still in it. And as long as you're still in it, you've got a chance to win it. Sean Fitzgerald, managing editor, feature writer with The Athletic, talking about the playoffs and where we are right now. Sean, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks for having me. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. This is Larry DeAndy, former mayor of Hamilton. Fascinating article in uh, The Spectator today. Mr. Red Hill, former city engineering boss at Center of Parkway Controversy, faces questioning at inquiry. And as uh, I mentioned, Larry DeAndy is with us now. Larry, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. All good, all things considered. Uh, the weather has changed and uh, things are looking up and Hamilton is filled with controversy, but what else is new? <laughs> and, you know, you remember this because you were uh, in a, mayor- a mayoral cam- campaign and obviously campaigning for the Red Hill uh, mm-hmm. at that time. What are your thoughts of what you're seeing now? And and I got to know Gary Moore very well. Um, highly professional man in my ex- in. Uh, my experience, um, and uh, of course, uh, uh, we'll see what uh, what the inquiry has to tell us. But here's my perspective. This is a big picture, and then we can talk about some of the specifics of the inquiry. But the big picture is that the road was supported by Hamiltonians overwhelmingly. Uh, it has brought uh, benefits to the city, not only in terms of a transportation corridor that finishes the Red Hill uh, and uh, Lincoln Alexander Loop, uh, but also the development and and the money uh, that comes into the city coffers as a result of that development up on up on the escarpment, uh, especially the Stony Creek component. So that's all good. Um, the problems, the technical problems uh, with the uh, with the roadway, such as they were, have been fixed, and people should not forget that they have repaved the road. So if there was if there was a problem. With the uh, with the asphalt, it's been changed. Uh, speed limits have been lowered, although people still speed because I I'm on the road a lot. People still speed, but but most people are driving at the lower speeds as well. So the fixes ha- has has occurred already. If there were some concerns, that's all the good news. So this inquiry, which is twenty million dollars so far and counting, is a um, is a uh, a bit of a legal trap for the city of Hamilton, I'm sorry to say, because there are all kinds of lawyers circling around, some with very good reason to do that, because uh, some people did lose their lives, and if the city is is at fault for having been party to that and the province, then there should be some accountability. Uh, but others are simply circling around because they smell some blood, and that concerns me a lot, not only uh, as someone who's been involved in government and who has been instrumental in uh, in at least advancing the uh, the reasons for this roadway, but also as a Hamiltonian whose taxpaying money will have to pay for any uh, uh, eventual cost beyond the $20 million, which could have been saved if council hadn't opted for the most expensive way of getting at some answers. Now, uh, that being, sorry, go ahead, finish your thought. No, no that's the backdrop. Let's chat about the inquiry if you wish. 
So uh, at the end of the day, uh, a, a lot of this information is, is, is getting people's attention now because there was a report that came in that said that uh, it was substandard and then that report was buried and wasn't found till uh, the, uh, the manager of design, Gary Moore, was replaced. I think that's what had, has, has seen, you know, so, is throwing up the red flags for people. And, I, you know, I, I, people so- want to know, even though it's great that it's all been fixed and it's all been taken care of, what the heck happened? Happened, I think is what, what people right, want to know. Right. And so, so my understanding of, uh, of that report uh, wasn't buried. Um, I mean, there, there are all kinds of uh, staff um, uh, commissioned reports uh, that go to, to the appropriate staff, and then it's translated into a uh, report that comes to council. Council, very seldom in my experience, sees original reports by consultants. They always see staff reports. But that being said, Larry, this was a very controversial situation because of the loss of life and such. So I think a lot of people were waiting for this information that seems to have been misplaced or certainly wasn't the attention of of those who were driving the bus, per se. So, so, and and I want to make some comments on that. But my understanding of that report is that it was not buried. Uh, It was considered by staff. It was not acted on. And we'll have to find out why staff decided not to do that, uh, but it wasn't buried, it wasn't hidden, it wasn't kept from council, it was a matter of, of uh, course. But I think more, most Hamiltonians would want to know what's in that report, what well, most but, Hamiltonians but, but are wondering, what most Hamiltonians are wondering is why anybody at City Hall didn't go looking for that report. Well, but, but that's exactly the point. So the report didn't say that the asphalt was substandard, it said let's do some more testing on that asphalt. We recommend that we do some more testing on that asphalt. A consultant was brought in, and that's Golder, Golder Consultant, who, who alerted staff that maybe we should do some more testing on the asphalt because it was new, it was experimental, uh, and so on. And then, and, and, you know, the, the inquiry gets into some of the reasons for that. And, and so we want to hear, we want to know why the engineer in chart, who actually went around the province, according to reports, uh, talking about uh, how to, uh, um, you know, the, the, the quality of, uh, of asphalt, the, the quality of roads and all of the component parts in building roads and expressways. Um, and it was an expert in that, according to the papers again. He decided that that, that recommendation um, didn't merit any further action. Now, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? Why did he do that? We'll have to hear uh, what uh, Mr. Moore and others have to say about that and that could have saved that could have that that could have saved the 20 million dollars that that you're talking about that we have to spend to now go back and find out you know pay all the money to really find out these answers but but so so imagine this and you know i don't want to be put in a position of having to justify technical uh, no expertise because i'm not an expert in this but imagine this if i'm a an engineer with expertise in this area and there's another engineer with expertise in, in an area as well who tells me that we've got to, you know, we've got to do A, B, and C. And I don't think we need to do A, B, and C because I believe that we've done A and B and C can be done differently. Then that's one expert and another expert's opinion. And so we'll have to wait to see uh, once all the facts are out, whether good judgment uh, was was, um, rendered in this case or poor judgment was rendered. But, of course, it's all now mixed into the politics of this. Already the conspiracy theater theorists 
you know, the, the, that are in Hamilton, the, 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 the fake journalists and, and, and the groupies and those that want to see a change at city council already are talking about the fact that well, again, Larry, if you want to get rid of all of that, you just bring in transparency and clarity. So, again, if that was there, they would be that. spending the $20 million. Got to run. We're right up that, against the clock, Larry. Let's, we'll talk about this again. We're plumb out of time. Larry DeAnne, uh, former mayor, city of Hamilton, talking about the Red Hill Expressway uh, inquiry. It seems that uh, everybody is talking about the rising gas prices. The fact that it happens a couple of times a week uh, and a few cents each jump is just literally crippling uh, not only Canadian. Canadians, but uh, obviously, uh, every industry that is, you know that you know evolves around a supply chain of uh, some sort. The average price in Canada has now topped two dollars a liter for the first time. Other, you know, some places as high as two twenty, uh, that sort of thing. Um, and and again, everybody's talking about it. But is the Prime Minister? Let's bring in Dan McTagg, President of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP, and with us now. Dan, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. I haven't visited a gas station today. <laughs> Good for you. That that will keep a smile on your face. <laughs> yes. So obviously we're in the midst of an Ontario election campaign. Affordability, a big issue. Uh, we're hearing various candidate, uh, candidates talk about this. Um, it seems everyone is commenting on the astronomical uh, gas prices because there's a billboard in front of us wherever we go. Uh, but the, the Prime Minister doesn't seem to be talking about this at all. Have you noticed that? Well, not only noticed it, noticed that he keeps doubling down on climate change and climate goals and, you know, uh, more restrictions for the energy sector, oil and gas sector, more uh, obfuscation on uh, shutting down pipelines. Uh, you know, he's imagining this, you know, world of magic and make-believe in which you can suddenly wish away fossil fuels. And that, of course, is supported by legions of his followers who are now too shy and too embarrassed to come out and admit that uh, what has what I had predicted for years to happen is now unfolding. And it's not going to get better. I mean, yeah, you'll have days where the price is going to drop, but this wouldn't be, uh, this would be, this would be funny if it was stri- strictly gasoline from their standpoint. What scares them is that this is now ram- has ramifications for the entire cost spectrum and cost of living for every Canadian. So, you know, you can be cute and trendy and do your climate change song and dance uh, and, and, and get all kind of Twitter pated over the idea that we have to do these terrible things because of our terrible industry. But at the end of all of this, uh, when you impoverish Canadians, uh, you uh, drive up the cost of food and fuel uh, and diminish their standard of living look out because uh, it doesn't matter what kind of a deal the greens ndp and the liberals have pulled to try to prevent popular uh consent from uh, popular opinion from taking them out either now or, or in 2025 you're going down to defeat many experts have said this is going to take a mixed bag a mix of everything in order to get through this all hands on deck every energy source whether it's reno- renewable yeah. or fossil fuel but it seems that the prime minister has canceled the canadian energy industry before the the alternative energy industry has caught up or certainly become mainstream i mean there's more demand for evs and such uh but that being said uh you know we've been working on this for 30 years and and i don't know what we send to europe other than solar panels and 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 wind turbines but he he seemed to have canceled the energy industry before we have a viable alternative as if it's one or the other when it's really a combination of the two 
all that of classic them. case of not looking before you leapt. And Europe did this. And Europe spent trillions of dollars only to demonstrate it to itself long before Russian troops amassed on the Ukrainian border that they were looking at energy. I mean, energy prices in Britain, Spain, Italy, France, Britain, the whole kit and caboodle went through the roof last mm -hmm. November. This is a symptom of a denial. It's a symptom of not being attached to reality. And we have politicians and woke leaders living in frickin' la-la land as if Canada's emission of a life-giving uh, molecule, carbon dioxide, uh, you know, is somehow going to bring the planet to an end. This is the kind of garbage that I think people have had to been forced to accept. And unfortunately, it is, uh, it is the kind of thing that it's likely to bring about ma major changes in the public's trust of the system and their ability to uh, live the Canadian dream. It's and I say this is nonsense because it's not scientific. This is really about politics and imposing an agenda of control. It's as if, you know, shut off the tap before there's an alternative that's readily available yep. to the mainstream and then hope that the rising prices will cripple us into changing our habits before there's anything to change them to. And he doesn't seem to be very sympathetic of the weight this is putting on Canadians. Most leaders no. do a lot, or at least acknowledging it in other ways, but he doesn't seem to show any signs of uh, it's all about saving the planet and to hell with Canadians. <laughs> But Canada was a solution. It was his government that prevented the world from getting access to that solution. I mean, when you canceled the Energy East pipeline, which he cheered, and you canceled the Northern Gateway pipeline, and he cheered, and you, you fiddle around with left-wing activists from outside of this country playing games with the Trans Mountain expansion, the pipeline there, uh, and, you, and you do nothing barely a, a you know a, a whimper when uh, when biden makes a silly mistake of killing the keystone xl which is 80 percent built and instead chooses to bring in eight hundred thousand barrels of oil from russia you say nothing as a government look if people don't recognize that in voting liberal in the last federal election or ndp is now bringing about the world's opprobrium of Canada's unwillingness to stand up and to get them what they desperately need, that is more natural gas and oil, then I'm not sure what's going to convince Canadians. This is not a global phenomenon. This global crisis has a huge Canadian undertone to it. Canada could have delivered 3 million barrels and displaced Russia's blackmail of the world and Europe. Instead, we wanted to be cool and trendy and cute. Well, how does that, uh, how's that squaring out? When you go to the grocery store this week and you see the prices have gone up, not 8% or 10%, as some had suggested would be the case in November. When I saw the doubling of the price of energy from gasoline and diesel and predicted what was going to go on, I knew full well there would be a 35% impact. So when you're going to the grocery store and you don't like the damn grocery prices, you got to ask yourself, was it really wise and smart to have voted liberal in the last election last September? I mean, it's a question I asked because I was a liberal MP for 18 years and a privy councillor. This is not the Liberal Party. This is a cult, and you've signed up to a cult, and now you're paying for that cult. All I can say, Scott, you know, to hear the truth you've spoken, twisted by certain individuals to make a trap for fools. And I think that's Tennyson. Could be Dan, Mc too. Dan McTagg with us, president of Canadians for Affordable Energy, former Liberal MP on where we are now. We didn't even get to talk about Jason Kenney. 
You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. We certainly know of the horrific situation that happened uh, in Buffalo, New York, at a grocery store uh, targeting a black neighborhood and uh, taking the lives of 10 people. Uh, President Joe Biden in Buffalo earlier today uh, to express his condolences and such and talk more about uh, gun bans and such as, you know, mass shootings, certainly an issue in the United States and an ongoing issue. Uh, let's bring in Phil Gursky, president of Borealis Threat and Risk uh, Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and a former CSIS analyst. He's with us now. Phil, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. How are you today? Thanks for the time. Much appreciated, Phil. Your thoughts of what we're seeing uh, and what we've seen in Buffalo. Uh, many are referring to white supremacy and uh, anything that this uh, alleged shooter was tied to. Is this something we need to be spending more time investigating? Well, absolutely. And, you know, we're talking about a mass shooting in our neighbor to the south, which is unfortunately all too common, as you know, you and I have talked about in the past. White supremacy is obviously an evil in our society. It's often tied to neo-Nazism. It's tied to anti-Semitism, anti-immigration, in some cases anti-Black. And there's no question that even here in Canada, we're more and more worried about um, white supremacists and the possibility that some may become violent. The vast majority are not violent, but obviously in this case in Buffalo, this man had it very, very carefully planned. And he took inspiration from attacks like the one in New Zealand a couple of years ago by an Australian white supremacist. So in answer to your question, Scott, is a very simple yes. This is something that we need to pay a lot of attention to. How where do you bal- how do you balance this? Where do you draw the line? Because I remember you saying before on this, there's lots of people that ha- that, that think uh, abnormal thoughts and, and um, you know, feel this way, but would never commit violence. So how do you stop something like this from happening? We understand this uh, this person allegedly cased the store out. There have been issues in the past. How do you how do you screen this stuff? Well, you don't, unfortunately, because, the, you know, you only have so many resources. So whether it's law enforcement or, in my case, an organization such as CSIS and security intelligence, we have a million things to do on a daily basis. And you simply don't have the men and women, you know, available to watch them all. It's not that it's luck, Scott, but you got to gotta be in the right place at the right time to notice when somebody is moving beyond talk to action. And as I said, most don't, don't do that. If you get it right, then you follow people. You might recruit human sources against them. You might get a warrant to intercept their communications, and you can tell when they're actually planning something. You know, but hindsight's twenty twenty, and you know, were the th- things missed? Probably, but what are the things were the FBI and other agencies dealing with? Probably a lot. So, you know, I hesitate to blame police, Scott, because that's kind of kind of my background as well. But uh, just to let your listeners know, this is really tough stuff. And and there are civil liberties at, at stake here, too. Um, white supremacy is nasty, but it's not illegal. And therefore, if you're not going to do anything with that, then there's no real reason to suggest we start incarcerating these people at the same time. What more do we know about this suspect? Obviously, he was videotaping all of this. It was streamed or sorry, streamed when this was all going uh, on. And, and obviously, there's links to other organizations there. Is there any way to uh, to, to relate all of these to connect all of these dots? Yes and no. I mean, obviously, it was very carefully planned. I mean, I saw a story where he traveled like 300 kilometers to get to Buffalo to do this. Mm-hmm. So this was this was something he thought very carefully about. He was obviously in touch with people online who share similar views to him. The fact that it seemed to have been a couple months in the making, that that's a good thing in the sense that if he had crossed a radar of the FBI or other law enforcement agencies uh, a few months ago, they would have heard of him, maybe followed him, maybe investigated him and found out what he was planning on doing. 
that's in a perfect scenario uh, where you have the resources. So it's not that it's impossible to to find people like this and stop them. It's just a real challenge. But again, in this case, there was a bit of lead time. So the question I would have is, you know, what what did do U.S. law enforcement officials need to have in place to identify these people earlier enough in the process that they can muster the necessary resources to stop it from happening? We, you know, us up here, we're all relating to this because we, from around here, travel to Buffalo quite frequently, whether it's sporting events or or tourism, what have you. So I think this is something that's relating to us in the greater Toronto-Hamilton uh, area. But, you know, we were talking to a CBS reporter yesterday, and he's out of Washington, and his point was, well, this is just another one. It just happened to be on your doorstep in Buffalo, New York this time, as opposed to Washington or Florida or, or someplace else uh biden there today talking about uh, gun regulation and such uh your thoughts on that and how this pertain how that pertains to this case well i do th- i agree with the reporter scott and for the record i used to attend buffalo bills games when i was growing up in london ontario so i know mm. buffalo as well uh, it, it was the choice of buffalo was random it could have been any city where a, yeah. a perpetrator like this man perceived there was a large african-american population that could be targeted so yeah it's kind of a coincidence it was buffalo oh well where do we start with the with the gun debate in the united states uh there's no question that someone having access to the arms this man had access to makes the possibility that his attack will be a, a very lethal one uh, all the more likely because of the, the nature of the weaponry but boy if you and i scott are going to solve the american gun debate over the radio today yeah. uh, we should get the nobel prize because this is something the americans don't want to talk about because it, it's such a, a passionate argument that goes back to the constitution and the, you know the days of the british you know the revolution against the british but it, it's a it's a it's a debate that has to be had and, and unfortunately uh, our friends of the south don't want to have that debate in a serious fashion and the other angle to this is the social media and the linking up with others who think like them and such and, and perhaps organizations. Is there more? Because we hear a lot of people say, you got to do more about white supremacy and the organizations that are that are coming up. What, what do you do? Well, again, another great question. And that's, you know, the, the beauty and the terror of the Internet is that it, it's a wonderful vehicle for sharing information. And it's a wonderful vehicle for sharing white supremacists and other nasty information. I don't know how you police that. I don't think there's any easy answer. Obviously, if people are, are promoting or exhorting acts of violence, I think that should be taken down. But again, in our neighbors of the South, the First Amendment is very, very strong about freedom of speech. Unless you can tie it to a specific act of violence, uh, there's a lot of protection for that kind of stuff. So, you know, I think we've had, have a conversation before, Scott. This is like whack-a-mole. You take down mm. one site, 10 more sites come up. It's much People have that this simplistic notion we can take care of this quite easily. It's a very difficult thing to do. Um, you know, if people report things that are exhorting violence, then great. Maybe the the social media providers can actually take them down. But it it really is a it's a race against trying to keep ahead of the curve. Many say, do something, do something, something should be done. And we hear all the rage whenever there's situations like this. It, rather than you know whack-a-mole, as you put it, is it easier to educate people on this? I think so. And, you know, going back to my days at CSIS when we talked about radicalization, and in those days it was largely with respect to Islamist terrorism, you know, educating people on what it's about, what the signs are of people that are going down this pathway, everything from schools to religious institutions to youth centers, that's where the key is. If we can educate people on what this thing looks like, we can make them more aware of it so they can warn people in advance. Because, yeah, the whack-a-mole approach is not going to work. And so, but like everything else in life, Scott, the better educated they are, the, the better position you're in to actually do something that's meaningful. Good point. Phil Gursky with us, president of Borealis Threat and Risk Consulting, distinguished fellow with the University of Ottawa's National Security Program and a former CSIS analyst. Phil, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. My pleasure, Scott. Have a good one. 
Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer. He'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. U.S. President Joe Biden was in Buffalo today paying his respects. Uh, obviously, on the weekend, a horrific shooting in a Buffalo neighborhood at a grocery store. And um, and everybody's asking questions and trying to figure out what the heck's going on and where they where they what they learn and how they move forward from all of this interesting talking to a cbs reporter uh earlier on in the week about this and they said uh, tragically this is just another mass shooting uh and it just happens to be in buffalo a uh, city on your doorstep so on that let's bring in reggie Giacchini, washington correspondent for global news he is with us now reggie thanks for the time i hope you're well good afternoon Let's talk about U.S. President Joe Biden's visit to Buffalo today. Uh, The objective here, what does this mean for gun regulation or does it in the U.S.? Well, I mean, uh, look, there's a couple of things there. Number one, the president uh, arriving in Buffalo is to not only, uh, you know, be the federal presence there from the federal government, but also to act uh, as consoler in chief to the families of the 10 people who died uh, and for the families of people who were injured along with the neighborhood and the community uh, as a whole. Uh, and the president's words today carried uh, some uh, some some intense weight with them uh, when he told uh, the people sitting around him and when he told the country that what took place in Buffalo over the weekend was terrorism, quote, domestic terrorism, uh, trying to, you know, focus this on the the hate uh, and the racism that that some people pick up, uh, whether it's from the media, whether it is from the Internet. Uh, It's words that are, you know, ringing hollow across a country where by the 15th of this month, Scott, there were already 198 mass shootings. Buffalo just lumped within those 198. And it is leading to growing calls what can we ever do to stop this? Uh, obviously. So let me ask you the question. Is this is this shooting any different from any of the other ones that happen uh, in any other part of the United States? Or is this just sensitive does because Buffalo's across the border to us? Well, I mean, look, in the United States, uh, at least, mass shootings uh, and shootings in general, um, they follow a pattern of the incident takes place. There becomes a question about how do we deal with gun control? It needs Republican pushback. Thoughts and prayers are answered. You get a visit from the president. The matter then goes away. And by the next time the shooting starts up again, uh, the pattern repeats itself. This one obviously having an impact to the Canadian audience, uh, notably those uh, in southern Ontario, because Buffalo stations are uh, widely aired over the air and on cable. Uh, So this is something that is playing out in households across the uh, across um, across parts of Canada, uh, but but more than that, this is just um, a growing picture uh, and, and a more clear picture of a problem uh, in the United States. Look, nobody ever wants to make light of these situations, but the Onion actually came out today and said, "Look, how can you deal with a problem? Nobody can come up with a nobody can come up with a solution, mm. even though this is the only country in the world that has this kind of gun problem, and they still haven't been able to fix it." Many are pointing to uh, white supremacy, the Internet, how these organizations, whether they're formal or not, uh, need to be investigated. Is that playing down there as much as it is here? 
Yeah. And look, it meets it's kind of two different sides of a coin. There are uh, uh, criticisms and concerns for some of the uh, some of the the hatred uh, and the racism that filled not only this shooting, but other shootings, including that California shooting uh, with criticisms pointed directly to right wing media uh, with some uh, some hosts who are actively kind of pushing this vitriol of white replacement theory, uh, you know, as a way to kind of justify uh, the kind of white supremacy that we see in some of these shooters. On the other side, you have people like uh, Governor Kathy Hochul from New York saying, look, yes, the hate needs to be dealt with. But at the same time, legislation also needs to be put in place. New York has some of the strongest gun laws in the United States. And this was still something that was able to be carried out. New York's gun laws are facing a challenge in the Supreme Court. Republicans will block any uh, good faith effort by the Democrats to try and rein in gun control because it's a constitutional right to carry a firearm in this country. Again, it leads to that pattern of let's talk about something and then ultimately nothing ends up happening. I, I keep going back to the fact that this guy drove like hundreds of miles or from a distance away to do all of this. Uh, you know, obviously he knew what he was doing. He had planned it all. But it seems bizarre that he would start at a place so far from where he originates. Well, I mean, the, the neighborhood that he took, uh, that, that he was alleged to have killed these 10 people, um, is a predominantly black neighborhood yeah. in mm-hmm. uh, in Buffalo, and if if the manifesto that was posted online uh, kind of you know points to the directions, this was uh, this was something that he intended to uh, carry out, as police say, you know, scouting out the region to carry out as much carnage as he possibly could, according to police. So where does this go from here, Reggie? I mean, the conversation about gun legislation is going to pick up. Uh, The problem being Democrats for the first time are openly saying, look, we don't have the votes in the Senate to be able to put any kind of meaningful changes forward. You need 60 votes for that. They have a razor thin margin with 50 and oftentimes can't get their own party in line for a vote. So Democrats are saying, look, we may not be able to do anything about this. Uh, this is something that we're going to have to learn to live with. We're going to have to try to regulate the the, the information that, that people are, are, are getting access to or try to put a stop to that. But this is a country where there is a rising opposition amongst the far right to push back on gun control because they believe gun rights are ultimately too important. And around they go. Reggie Cicchini with his Washington correspondent for Global News talking about U.S. President Joe Biden in Buffalo today, paying his respects for the shooting at the grocery store down there. Reggie, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you. Make sure you're watching Global Tonight for more on all of this with Reggie. It is 4.56 News at the top of the hour. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Uh, By now, uh, a lot of you have heard of the carjacking uh, that Mitch Marner was involved in. Uh, Obviously, uh, with him and his uh, fiance were out. And um, I guess three guys come up and and with guns and, and... they, they get carjacked, very simply. That's what happened. Those are really only the details that we know at this point. The great news is nobody was hurt in all of this. But, you know, I started thinking what this must be like to go through this sort of situation for someone, and especially considering what the last two and a half years have been like, whether it's, you know, the anxiety and such around a global pandemic and, and you know, now the, uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, you know, it's uh, it can be a pretty disheartening world for many in a time like this. And then you go through some sort of traumatic event like we've seen with uh, Mitch Marner. Let's bring in Steve Jordans, professor of psychology, University of Toronto, and is with us now. Steve, thank you for the time. I hope you're well. I 
am indeed. Great to be with you again. You know, we've talked about this uh, before, Steve. You know, I, I remember asking you, I believe it was, uh, you know, we, we've been through the pandemic and, yeah. and the ups and downs of that. Then there was the convoy thing and the divisiveness that started around that. And then into the Russian invasion of Ukraine. It's a pretty heady yeah. time for for many people around the world, not just in Canada. And then all of a sudden you get hit with something, uh, a life or uh, some sort of trauma, uh, a life situation or, or trauma that can really uh, have an impact on you. When you when you put all of this together, uh, how diffi- difficult can it be to, to manage events like this? Yeah, I mean, it, it is really tricky. So we've, we've all had our sort of fight or flee system, which is the, the system that reacts to threat. Uh, we've had that sort of humming along at a, at a, a low level, and sort of everybody has, and that's made us a little more emotional. It's made it harder for us to concentrate and do stuff where our frontal lobes are involved. We're more more primitive. We're, we're almost like a more primitive version of ourselves as we've been dealing with all this stuff. And when this is chronic, as it has been, it really does start to wear us down, and we talk about burnout or exhaustion, uh, and we actually know it can impact us physically when we reach that level that literally we become more susceptible to, well, viruses, diseases, etc. So, yeah, it can get very serious when it's been going on this long. What would it feel like for someone, and again, you know, uh, we don't know much about the Mitch Marner situation, we know what happened, but for anyone who had gone through something like this, what would you feel like afterwards? Because I can imagine at the time it would be one of terror, one of shock and and and, and scare and, and so on, but then once it's over, I, I would imagine you'd feel angry and, you know, maybe second guess what you did or didn't do, and, and, and how do you move forward from something like this? Yeah, I mean... We, we certainly know, like, if we imagine just in that moment how intense that had to be, a, a critical question of what happens after is what the people, and I'm, I'm talking now about Mitch and his fiancée, what they were feeling at that moment and how much they felt that they or their partner, their life partner, you know, were literally in some sort of existential threat. Did, did they feel like this could be it? Um, and when our brain starts to feel like this could be it, it kicks in these primitive systems that basically say, hey, listen, if you survive this, I'm going to make sure you have more warning about the danger in the future. Um, that system we call post-traumatic stress disorder um, because it doesn't work very well in the modern world, but in the world where it evolved, the whole intent was to make you more ready in the future. If they were at that level, then they could be experiencing some really significant uh, effects of of the the stress of that moment, Uh, and these could be enduring. There could be PTSD-like symptomology that comes out of it. So uh, there could be caution when moving forward, uh, fearful of doing things, whether it's uh, in a car or in a situation where they might feel danger. Uh, That could last for a while. Yeah, your brain, what it basically does is says, okay, just before this threat happened, what was going on in, in the world? And is there anything there that I can sort of grab onto and, uh, and use as a predictor that this threat is about to happen? And that's what's wrong with the modern world. Our, our, our threats are hard to predict. And so we often latch onto something random, or our brain does. And, you know, it could be like, let's imagine there was a song on the radio just before this all went down. Um, mm. Mitch and his, and his partner could find themselves three months from now, and that song comes on the radio, and they suddenly feel terrified. It, it, it literally bring them back to that point, which is their brain again saying, well, last time you heard this song, you you got attacked right after that, so I'm getting you ready to respond now. Uh, So it really makes sense at some level, but it just all goes wrong in the modern world. 
Uh, now, I should say, by the way, that's the extreme. You know, that's if they mm-hmm. really, really felt um, in danger, in, in serious danger. It, it, it depends on how they perceive the whole situation, and it could just be afterwards that they're feeling embarrassed, stupid, like you said, sort of second-guessing, maybe we shouldn't have done that in the first place, um, and, and sort of victimized. And sometimes victims sort of blame themselves. They, they'll say, well, it was my fault, and they'll come up with crazy reasons why, oh, if I'd only done that, this wouldn't have happened. And they really need to go through that process of saying, no, this wasn't my fault. This was, you know, those jerks who came and and did this to me, and it was random. And your intellectual mind can kind of get there. Your emotional brain, um, you know, kind of continues to feel those fearful associations. Are we experiencing the same sort of fear? And I don't mean to compare the two at all. At all, but you know what we're what we've seen society go through with this global pandemic. We've certainly heard the issues about mental health and and how that has become more of a strain during this. Um, how long will it take us to get through all of this? How long will it? And let's assume that that sunny days are ahead of us now. But who knows what could happen? But but how long do you think it's going to go? How long do you think it's going to take before we go back to whatever the new normal is? Yeah. So so I'm sort of on record of making a relatively bold prediction on this, but but we'll, we'll revisit that prediction with the caveat I just mentioned. So so I've I've argued for that for the vast majority of us. Once we truly feel safe, and, and we're starting to get there now, I'd, I'd say a month ago we didn't feel safe. We still felt like there's a whole lot of COVID out there. We're mm-hmm. starting to feel like it's, it's, it's pulling back. And once we feel truly safe, um, I, I coined the term the great snapback, that I think what we'll see is most of us will, more quickly than we even think, will be back to pre-pandemic sorts of socialization and, and doing the stuff we did. Because that's natural. I mean, we are social creatures, and we've formed all these habits over decades that, yes, we've inhibited for two years, but once we feel like we can go back to that, I think it'll feel like a warm blanket of familiarity. Unless you were feeling that mortal fear, that same mortal fear I talked about uh, in the in the Marner case. If, if you've been going through the pandemic thinking, this thing is going to kill me, or this thing is going to kill somebody I love if I don't do the right things. And if you were really feeling that sort of existential uh, fear and threat, then you could have those same PTSD kind of symptoms. You might associate, you know, lacks of ma- lack of masks or big crowds with that feeling of fear. And now, even though intellectually you know it's kind of safe, you might find that when you go out there, you are triggered in a PTSD sort of way, and, and you might feel something like a panic attack where you just feel like, I can't go there, I can't do it. Uh, and I think it's really important that employers understand that distinction. And, and if an employee, for example, is being hesitant to come back, good to have that chat and get a sense of, of what they went through and how personally dangerous it felt. And, and if there's a sense that it really felt personally dangerous, I think you need to respect that, and you need to help that person get a little bit of clinical support um, to make that transition. Steve Jordan's with us, professor of psychology, University of Toronto, talking about dealing with trauma after a two and a half year global pandemic. Steve, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, my friend. All right, let's bring in Nelson Wiseman, professor with the Department of Political Science, University of Toronto, to talk about last night's provincial leadership debate. He is with us now. Nelson, thank you for your time. I hope you're well. Yes, I am, Scott. Good afternoon. So what were your thoughts of what you saw on uh, last night for 90 minutes? Uh, your thoughts, uh, what you expected? What I expected? Well, I expected that uh, debate wouldn't shift people's opinions very much, unless it was very unusual, and I d- didn't think it was. Uh, research suggests 
that the people who watch debates are generally political junkies, the people most engaged, people mm-hmm. most likely to vote, and those people are generally committed to a party. So you don't have that many uncommitted people that are available to be swung during a debate. What will swing... This doesn't mean that debates are irrelevant, and some debates can make a difference. Not because people watch the whole debate, but because there might be one, two, or three punchlines which get reproduced on the news in little clips, like you just reproduced uh, them t- the, the candidates talking over each other. So that gives a certain impression of people. So tomorrow, if you ask certain people, some people... Did you uh, watch or hear the debate? They might very well say yes, because they heard it <laughs> 10 seconds on Scott Thompson's show. So uh, the research suggests that debates generally don't swing opinion. We have had debates where they do swing opinion, and what counts a lot is who's in the debate. If you've got new faces, that gives them a great opportunity. So last night we did have a new face. We had Mike uh, Schreier of the um, uh, Green Party. I'm not sure, however, it would lead to his to his party gaining any more seats beyond the seat that they currently hold. Uh, I thought Ford held his own. Uh, I thought and- Andrea Horvath had the advantage of being the only woman on stage and uh, brightly colored. Stephen DeLuca was overly cerebral in some uh, cases. And also, um, research suggests that bald politicians are generally not looked upon as favorably as those with good head of hair. Really? Yes. Oh, my. Um, So let me ask you this, Nelson, because you've obviously... Although although I should say that uh, Del Luca, I don't think, hurt his chances because uh, the Liberal brand is stronger in Ontario than the NDP brand is, and the Liberals only have, they're going to gain seats, and they're almost certainly going to finish second. So, but, but I don't think there was enough punch there for them to go into first. That could happen in the last two weeks of this campaign, but as each day goes by, that's less likely. So uh, let me ask you this, Nelson. You've seen a few of these in your time, as have I, and we've all come through a global pandemic of two and a half years, and many aspects of our lives have changed and and will not go back to the way they were, and and people just have different priorities now. We're seeing this on the kitchen table issues that are uh, front and center with elections now as opposed to even two, three years ago. So when I started watching this last night and they all started going at each other, and I'm listening to the politicians, and and it, it, it's you know, especially with the opposition, it's just as if nothing has changed, as if we haven't even had a global pandemic, and the attitudes of people have not changed. Can you fight an election in 2022, 23, 24 the same way you did uh, before COVID-19? Because I think a, a lot of people are at the point where they're tired of the talk; they want action. Yes, they want action. Different people want action on different things. Yes, COVID-19 has had a great impact on our lives. Has it had an impact on our politics? Mm, I can't tell. I wouldn't say not on this election. Had this election been held last year 
or a year and a half ago, I think Ford would have done very badly. I think the Conservatives would have lost a lot. But for a lot of people now, the pandemic seems to be in remission. It's in the rearview mirror. They see the number of cases declining rapidly. It's not the lead item on the news every day. And people have a very short attention span. So that and the other thing that's going on is the economy really is booming. Uh, unemployment, I don't know when it's been this low. There's a mm. chronic labor shortage. In that kind of context, that generally favors an incumbent. So while some things might change overall because of COVID, uh, you know, and it's not completely clear yet, I think we will probably have more, some more online learning. We'll probably continue to see an increase in um, e-commerce. But for the most part, I think people will go back to older ways. Changes will be less dramatic than they were during the two years of COVID that we've had. Uh, so all of those things, I think, in a way, favor the conservatives who who like the fact that the campaign... Uh, that there are there are big issues like affordability. There's no doubt, or well, I wouldn't even call it affordability. I would call it rising prices mm-hmm. because a lot of people don't like paying higher prices, but they can't afford it. Um, and it's not clear that the parties can do anything about that. Like when you hear the parties complaining about the price of gasoline, I heard Andrea Horvath complaining that uh, oil companies were gouging. I thought, well, the NDP's in power in B.C., gasoline's even more expensive there. How, yeah. how come the NDP, which is opposed to, to gouging by corporations, hasn't been successful there? Because I think people know the price of gasoline hasn't gone up because of Doug Ford. At the same time, they know when Doug Ford boasts that he's going to reduce the tax by five cents a liter, they say, hey, since you made that promise, gasoline's gone up by 40, 50 cents a liter. So you haven't had much impact. And when I hear the parties arguing about affordable housing, I think, and that rents are high, I think, well, most most people own their homes. And when you say you're going to build so many houses, I don't see the government building houses. That's going to be done in the private sector. And isn't it funny, Nelson, isn't it funny, Nelson, how all three parties say they're going to build 1.5 million homes in 10 years? I don't think I've ever heard all three parties say that before. Well, they can say it. Uh, I don't know if they've... Well, uh, the big question is, why wasn't it done before? (laughs) My question is, uh, what do you mean you're going to build it? Are are you going to be hiring people Mm. to build these houses? Look, unless you're building social housing, uh, that's not happening, and I didn't hear many commitments to that. Uh, I didn't hear them talk about um, coming down on municipalities about changing zoning laws. Uh, to improve densification. Uh, And also, remember, we're going to need more housing just because we're now going, we're getting more and more immigrants. Mm -hmm. So when I hear the government talking about we created all these jobs, I say, no, no, hang on, hang on. You just have more people. Uh, That's a factor. Or when the government says uh, we've put more into education and health care. Yeah, that's because there are more people around. But actually what counts is how much improvement has there been in real terms. Are nurses making more in real terms? No, they're not. And 
and I would say doctors aren't, and, you know, we've had the optometrists on strike yep. and so on. Nelson Wiseman with us, Professor, Department of Political Science at the University of Toronto, uh, post-mortem of the provincial leaderships debate uh, last night. Nelson, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. Prince Charles and Camellia have landed and starting their uh, official Royal Canadian visit in St. John's. Ross Lord is there. He is a senior digital broadcast journalist with Global Nationals Atlantic correspondent and is based in Halifax and is with us now. Ross, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, Scott. Yeah, I am well. It's good to talk to you again. So uh, you were there, I understand, when they arrived in St. John's. What's that experience like when royalty touches down? Well, it's interesting because we've covered a few of these over the years, and I'm not a royal gazer. I don't know if you are, but there is something a little bit special about seeing these people in person. Uh, Mm. There's a certain, um, I don't know what the word is, there's a certain elegance to it or, or, uh, you know, um, as much as our kids might look up from their storybook and, and at the real Prince Charles and go, oh, that's not a prince. <laughs> it is a prince. <laughs> and not only a prince, it's a prince that's likely going to be a king one day soon. So, you know, that's pretty amazing stuff, right? Because kings and princes and queens and princesses are all part of our psyche in some way, uh, fairy tale or otherwise. So, you know, the fact is he's, he's very likely to be king very soon. Mind you, we said that 13 years ago when we covered him here in Newfoundland as well. Mm. Um, so it, it still has some cachet, right? Even if you don't think he's especially charismatic or even if you don't pay much, if any, attention to this. What about the response from locals there? Uh, we know that, uh, for example, if if uh, Harry and Meghan show up or or uh, or Harry, or sorry, or William, or such, that it's a completely different story. So were there lots of people there to, to greet them? Yeah, there's not much of a wow factor, right, for most people. Um, I would say the crowds were that we saw were, uh, I'll say respectable. I, you know, I don't cover them continuously uh, enough to make a, you know, a, a scientific judgment or statement on that. And, and mind you, we talked to some royal watchers, but for the most part, the material we used in our Global National Report is from a pool feed, um, you know, that uh, is a product of the networks pitching in and, and making sure that they cover them at every stop. We didn't have the luxury of going on the media bus and then kicking back for a few hours and, and filing a report later tonight because of our supper time deadline. So we knew if we got on the media buses, we'd be stuck and we wouldn't make deadline. So we, we did have the luxury of the pool feed, and that's where we drew the bulk of our material from. Um, so, uh, you know, it's Newfoundland, right? They, they What they do best, arguably, is welcome visitors. It, mm. You know, at least these visitors are not um, in, in, the, in a time of strife, per se, but uh, they're, they're warm, welcoming people, and, and, and they do this very well. So what's the agenda while there? Because it's a quick visit. It's a quick visit, yeah. They've actually left already. They they were here mm-hmm. for, I think, about four hours or so total. Um, they came in. They went to Confederation Building, which is where the provincial government is. Uh, Charles made a speech where he, you know, extolled the virtues of Canada as a force for good in the world. Um, he did uh, emphasize truth and reconciliation and, you know, the fact that that requires listening and, and sort of an ongoing process. Um, him and Camilla uh, 
reflected and, and had a, a moment of uh, silence at, at what's called a heart garden, which is a garden that's created to um, honor the children who died at, at the residential schools and, and survivors and their families. Uh, so on one hand, you've got the traditional stuff like the 21-gun salute, the honor guard inspection, and then you've got more contemporary issues like that. Um, uh, and that will be one of the continuing themes through uh, the three-day trip. It's, it's uh, uh, Newfoundland and Labrador, and then it's Ottawa, where they're actually flying into tonight. Uh, they'll spend the day there tomorrow, and then on uh, Thursday is Northwest Territories before they head back. Why, why such the short trip here, Ross? I mean, if you're going to come here, why not stay longer? I don't know. I'd stay longer. <laughs> if I was, uh, <laughs> it's an awful long flight for three days. It is. The context of it is, is that it's part of this Platinum Jubilee, right? So yeah, his mother, yeah. Queen Elizabeth, has been on the throne for 70 years, which, if you think about it, is astounding, yeah. right? That's remarkable, least. yeah. So this is all part of that. Um, and uh, it's interesting, too, because you can't help but think about recent public opinion polls that suggest a lot of Canadians, more than ever, are in favor of severing ties with the monarchy, but most Canadians still have continuing affection for the Queen. So um, nothing against Charles, but, you know, the favorite is Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> Ross Lord is with us, senior digital broadcast journalist and Global News National Atlantic correspondent based in Halifax and St. John's today for the arrival of Prince Charles and Camilla, who have already left and then off to Ottawa and St. John's and then back home again. Ross, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. You too, Scott. Take care. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciated. Thanks to the two Wills for producing and Diana and Dave in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. John, the comments made by uh, Linda Lucchese where she said that applauds council and you know, she's concerned that the, the provincial government is, is just going to overturn the democratic decision made by uh, council. I have to say that the decision made by council is probably the most undemocratic decision made um, based on 16,000 people in a city of over 500,000. Policy changes uh, suggested by uh, staff now to implement a no urban boundary expansion doesn't talk about the costs, the hundreds of millions of dollars of infrastructure upgrade that we'll have to do. It's a, it's a shameful decision. We have to get rid of the existing council. There you have it. Your last words. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance <laughs> recital. <laughs> and Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents, and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.